The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For the more of the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Capture Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know the rule. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Tonight, we are going to be talking about perioperative medicine, specifically from the point of view of an anesthesiologist, Dr. Angie Selzer. And of course, I'm Dr. Matthew Frank Wado. Sadly, tonight, I'm without my normal co-host, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, America's primary care doctor. But tonight on the show, a returning fantastic co-host, who I'll introduce you in just a minute. But first, I want to remind you that on this show, we we interview the experts to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. With us tonight is the great Dr. Avit, Avital Yehudit Oglasser. I, tell me if I got the middle name wrong, but she is, of course, our chief of perioperative medicine. Avi, how are you? I'm good. I haven't recorded with you all in a while. It was great to be back and really great to be back. Uh, to have this fantastic conversation, um, bringing together periot medicine in an interdisciplinary space with Dr. Angie Selzer, who's a longstanding partner in crime of mine uh, in the perioperative community. She's an anesthesiologist uh, and currently the medical director of the pre-op clinic at the University of Colorado with a clinical interest in periop allergy testing and anaphylaxis, which is actually the first time I ever heard her lecture several years ago. She is truly a non-traditional student, uh, having majored in art at Oberlin, taught chess in New York City, uh, and had two kids before going to medical school. Uh, since then, and in her words, not in this order, she's had two more kids, adopted two dogs, built a she shed, uh, and married a wonderful person, Robert, who is a fiction writer. Um but during our time together tonight, we're uh, just going to learn so many high-yield pearls to help us as internists, primary care, and hospitalists uh, work with our anesthesiology colleagues uh, as best as possible with the ultimate goal of making a safe surgical space for patients. Um, so we'll talk about guidelines, we'll talk about different society practices and priorities, and we'll talk about communication uh, as part of a team. So without further ado, let's learn. Angie, we've been talking for a while now, and thank you so much for coming on the show. They've heard your full bio, but tell the audience how you describe yourself and maybe a hobby or interest that you like to do outside of medicine. Thanks, Matt. I'm so glad to be here. Curbsiders, I got to say, I didn't know how popular you guys were. I'm embarrassed to admit. And as soon as I started telling people I was going to be on here, I think I got a lot more clout at work. So I'm really <laughs> excited about appearing on the show. Um, my name, you know, is Angie, as you already said. Um, I'm an anesthesiologist. Um, I did most of my training in New York City, or all of my training in New York City, uh, anesthesia training, and then fellowship in regional and thoracic anesthesia. And now I practice here in the beautiful state of Colorado, where I'm the medical director of our pre-op clinic and practicing anesthesiologist. And uh, one-liner about me is um, I really love making art. I was a studio art major Um and I don't have a lot of time to do that, but it's it's one thing that I really love. And this time of year, I, I do a lot of art making with Halloween costumes. That's sort of <laughs> where I go. I don't know 
if I just repeated all of the bio stuff, but. All right. Anything you want to ask Avi before we, we move on with things? Well, I have a little bit of a, a a loaded question because I've been friends with Angie for years, but does the she shed have anything to do with making Halloween costumes? Yeah, so we're actually recording in my she shed. Um, I had a little art shed here. And uh, yeah, I have my sewing machine. This is where I where I make where I do the majority of my crafts. And so thanks. Amazing. The, the Periop community that Angie and I are part of together uh, <laughs> has really come to to love and appreciate and and know the she shed thanks to lots of Zoom meetings in the last two. And a I half see years. a dartboard, a lot of artwork on the wall. I see a guitar. This is this is pretty cool. And oh, there looks like there's a counter. There's a wine fridge. I, actually, oh, am yeah. I giving oh, up? Am I giving alcohol. away too much? <laughs> there's alcohol. Uh, this is my art table. And then the sad thing is uh, it got co-opted by my son who's learning how to it's play a drum the drums. Set. Wow. <laughs> yeah. This but is not I, really a shed, people. I'm seeing glass doors, a lot of windows. <laughs> this is uh, this is more than a shed. This is, yeah, shed. I might have sh- to put uh, the, the inaugural tweet about the she shed from our first hybrid meeting in March of 2020 in the show notes. Yeah, sure. To prove that this is a thing. This is giving us a great transition. I I don't want to put you under high pressure. We're going to give you a hypothetical case, and uh, we'll, we'll, Avi, I'll ask you to you to read it and and start us off here. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. And on The Curbsiders, we talk about wellness a lot. We talk about how important it is to do self-care. And I think getting yourself into therapy is a great way to do that because, let's face it, life does not come with a user's manual. Sometimes you need help figuring out what's going on with you, and it's hard to see that for yourself. That's why it helps to talk to somebody. And BetterHelp, what I love about BetterHelp is it makes it easier to get yourself into care. It lowers that bar. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to see anybody. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. There's no waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp. Dot com slash curb. That's better help. H E L P dot com slash curb. This episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. They feature farm fresh pre-portion ingredients and seasonal recipes. They make it very easy for you to prepare meals at home. For busy clinicians in our audience, they offer quick and easy options like 20-minute meals and easy cleanup recipes. They're delivered right to your door so you can spend less time prepping and planning your meals. And guess what? HelloFresh is cheaper than grocery shopping and 25% less expensive than takeout. So you gotta love that. I know I love HelloFresh because my skills in the kitchen, they're a bit lacking, but with HelloFresh, I can prepare some delicious meals for my family. They're fun to make with my kids. I want you to try it out. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Curb65 and use code Curb65 for 65% off plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash Curb65 and use code Curb65 for 65% off plus free shipping. 
So I'm going to start off with case one from Cashlack Memorial. Uh, we have Brian, who's a 70-year-old uh, male patient, scheduled for a right total hip replacement. And he's he's medically complex at 70 years old. And he states that a couple years ago, when his left hip replacement was done, he had been scheduled at a day surgery center, uh, but arrived NPO that day to be canceled on the day of surgery and told that he needed to be rescheduled at Cashlack Memorial because it was, air quotes, a bigger hospital. Uh, He has no idea why that happened, but he vaguely recalls that uh, that even though he didn't have any coronary disease and was, uh, again, air quotes, cleared to proceed uh, um, proceed with the left hip replacement without a stress test, he did end up getting an echo before he was rescheduled at the larger hospital. So he's now scheduled for his right hip replacement. Um, he's coming coming to me, so I'm I'm his prime new primary care uh, physician, and I've been asked to do his pre-op evaluation. And I, I noticed that his records include a history of uh, again air quotes theme uh, theme of the night murmur um, with unknown details, um, pulmonary hypertension, chronic ankle edema, and sleep apnea for which he's unable to tolerate CPAP. Um, as you start talking through this medical history and doing a new patient visit, he also expresses that he's very curious if his surgery will use an epidural rather than general anesthesia, since he's subjectively noticed some mild cognitive changes. And he reflects that his neighbor with advanced dementia had an epidural for an urgent hip fracture repair pretty recently and was raving about the experience. So that's our case. Um, meaty, lots to sink our teeth into. I'm going to start with this, this question. What is anesthesia or what is anesthesiology? So I think I took care of that patient, Avi. I didn't know if we were, (laughs) I think I know him. I think I met him. I think Um, there's a lot of patients who fit that description, which is why it's sort of our amalgam case to to learn from, because I think this captures so many challenges in this domain of medicine. Cashlack sure. is everywhere too, so yeah. it's possible. <laughs> That's our new hashtag or new okay. slogan. Cashlack is everywhere. I'll take. Yeah, I'll buy so the T-shirt. How do you describe anesthesiology? Or I'm an anesthesiologist. Like, if if you were meeting somebody in an elevator, like, what's your thirty second elevator speech? Well, you know, uh, I have to say that this is seems like at face value a super straightforward question to ask. What's anesthesia? What does an anesthesiologist do? But actually, um, the different types of anesthesia there's can be fairly complex, and there's a lot of misuse of terminology of describing anesthesia, both by anesthesiologists and surgeons and other providers. So that I think that there, it's misused a lot of a lot of times. Um, a patient getting general anesthesia versus MAC anesthesia, and which is which. Um, so. I think that the easiest thing to do would be to start with MAC anesthesia, which is, stands for Monitored Anesthesia Care. And anytime a patient has an anesthesiologist or an anesthesia team monitoring them during their surgery or procedure, that's considered a MAC anesthetic. And so sometimes I'll have a patient who's extremely sick. The procedure can pretty much be done under local, um, but we're really there to monitor the sick patient during the procedure. And I might only give ANSAF and not give any sort of sedating medications or other medications. And in those situations, it is considered a MAC. I say in those situations, it stands for monitored ANSAF care, um, <laughs> but it's still, cons- <laughs> it's still considered a MAC. Um, but for the majority of time when we do a MAC anesthetic, we are giving medication to relax the patient and to treat their pain and to make them more comfortable. 
Um, but in a true MAC anesthetic, we, we cannot guarantee the patient will not remember anything. Um, we tell them they'll be comfortable and we'll be with them the whole time, but they may sort of remember being in the operating room. They remember part of their uh, procedures. Once we start giving enough medication that the patient no longer responds to painful stimuli, that is by definition a general anesthetic. And so in actuality, in practice, the vast majority of anesthetics that we give without an airway or an, you know, an endotracheal tube or a laryngeal mask airway or LMA is actually a general anesthetic without an airway. We've, we've sedated the patient to such a degree that they're not responding at all um, to anything that the surgeon or proceduralist is doing. But more traditionally, when someone mentions a general anesthetic, they're talking about a general anesthetic um, with a breathing tube, with an endotracheal tube, or a laryngeal mask airway or LMA. Um, and with those types of anesthetics, most of the time, the patient is on the ventilator and they're getting either inhaled or IV medication and we're controlling their breathing throughout the surgery and any sort of laparoscopic surgery. But in actuality, most of the surgeries that we give anesthesia for are usually a general anesthetic um, with some sort of breathing device. We also do regional anesthetics. Um, regional anesthetics are when you numb any sort of part of the body. So I actually did that extra year of training to do a fellowship in regional anesthesia and acute pain. And it really sort of were able to, I think regional anesthesiologists are more like the snipers um, where we can really target and be very specific um, about what we want to numb and where we want to provide anesthesia as opposed to a general anesthetic, which is kind of like carpet bombing. It will, it will work for anything. Um, the most common regional anesthetic is a neuraxial anesthetic, which is either a spinal or an epidural. And we use those for um, joint surgeries commonly and also cesarean sections. Um, those are the most common types of regional anesthetics, but we can also do regional anesthesia for any sort of surgery on the upper extremity, surgery of the neck, surgery on the chest. Um, there's a lot of different things that we can do with sort of just targeting that region in specific. Um, this is different from, yeah. this is different from a nerve block, you know, like a distal, I usually, when you say regional uh -huh. anesthesia, I was thinking like you were going to say like, you know, digital blocks or some limited to the extremities, but you're talking about chest and spine. And so yeah. that's a different thing. Yeah. So you can do a nerve block. I mean, a digital block oftentimes is really sort of done by the surgeon. Maybe they're doing like a ring finger release or something like that. Um, but we do do nerve blocks of the brachial plexus for the upper extremity surgery, so surgery of the shoulder, arm, or hand. And, um, but you can also do regional anesthesia for other parts of the body as well. So paravertebral blocks um, can be done for chest surgery. We could do a mastectomy under regional anesthesia with very little sedation. There's a lot of different things that we can do, but I would say, you know, it's your standard anesthesiologist um, without maybe that extra expertise in regional anesthesia is probably going to be proficient with neuraxial anesthesia, general anesthesia, and MAC anesthesia. And at some institutions may be very comfortable with doing upper extremity blocks as well. So a lot of the, the banter that, that I've heard and I sort of, you know, encapsulate for those who are not 
trained as anesthesiologists is there's a lot of optimism and excitement that regional anesthesia or local anesthesia um, means you need don't need general anesthesia necessarily, or it kind of implies that it's safer, it speeds the recovery process. Can every patient be a candidate for regional anesthesia? Is it safer for all types? Like like Brian, our patient, it seems really excited that his neighbor did so well with uh, with a higher risk, you know, a hip fracture repair with neuraxial anesthesia. Sure. So not everyone's a candidate for regional anesthesia. I mean, first of all, patient has to consent to having a regional anesthetic. And some patients are just very sort of suspicious. It sounds like a new thing. Why would I want that? Just put me to sleep kind of thing. Um, I've had, I've been to sleep before. Why not do that again? I know that it works. Um, so we always try to do our best to convince them. Um, I do think regional anesthesia in general is a better experience for people. Um, they're less likely to have nausea. They're less likely to have sort of the post-anesthetic hangover that you get from a general anesthetic. They wake up pretty quickly and, and they're ready to go pretty quickly. Um, but in terms of specific advantages to regional anesthesia um, and more contraindications to it, I think that what Brian was mostly concerned about was post-operative cognitive dysfunction. Yeah. I do think that avoiding general anesthesia makes sense if you can just give regional anesthesia and a little bit of sedation so that they're pain-free but comfortable during their surgery, shouldn't that result in less post-operative cognitive dysfunction? But so far, the research doesn't necessarily bear that out. I think physiologically, it makes sense to me. I think it's a better anesthetic and the patients do really well. But in terms of that specific risk that Brian is worried about, the post-operative cognitive dysfunction, we don't really currently have research to actually support that. There are certain things that a regional anesthetic can really help with. Um, it can help with reducing post-operative pain. Uh, you need less narcotics. It can help by reducing narcotics, and that in turn can reduce post-operative nausea and vomiting. Um, for certain surgeries like fistula surgeries, having a fistula surgery under a regional block has actually been shown because of its venodilatory properties to actually improve, you know, graft function and overall graft um, patency. So that's really good for that. There's some evidence to show that regional anesthesia may improve or reduce uh, outcomes after patients having cancer surgery. So some evidence to show that um, there's maintained natural killer cell function so that that can actually help um, patients having specifically cancer surgery with their outcomes. Um, and then, you know, in terms of contraindications to regional anesthesia, aside from patient refusal, uh, they may be on an anticoagulant or antiplatelet medication. And if they don't follow that for the, you know, prescribed amount of time as recommended by our society guidelines or the ASRA guidelines, um, we may not want to uh, do a regional or neuraxial anesthetic. Patients may be coagulopathic um, for whatever reason, and they may not be a candidate. And then there's other things as well. So infection at the local site. So, you know, if they have cellulitis in their lower back, mm -hmm. we're not going to put a spinal needle through there. They may have had specific back surgeries or things where they're not really a candidate for the epidural space. 
um, you know, placing a catheter in the epidural space. So there's um, other considerations as well. If you shied away from challenges, you wouldn't be the person you are today. Need to hire someone who loves a good challenge as much as you do? To find them fast, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, Assessments, and Virtual Interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. One thing that makes Indeed kind of unique is this screenings and assessments tool they have included. This helps their your star applicants shine before they interview with over 135 graded assessment tests that they can take, from cooking to coding. Indeed assessments help take the stress out of the interview process because the candidates can show off their skills before they even interview, so you can spend that time talking about the things that's most important to you. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide who use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows that when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why with Indeed, you only pay for quality applications that match your must-have job requirements. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Visit indeed.com slash internal medicine to start hiring now. That's indeed.com slash internal medicine. Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Avi, so we're talking about some of the contraindications to regional anesthesia, but in general, it sounds like it's favorable and it, it, it always seemed to me like it would be less risky. And then I saw there was an article about hip fracture surgery uh, comparing general and regional anesthesia that had come out in the past year. Can you remind the audience just the gist of that? Yeah, so this was um, published just in the last year. I believe it was the REGAIN trial uh, with uh, Dr. Newman as the senior author. Um, but I think dampened some of our excitement about epidural or neuroaxial anesthesia just being so much better for older, sicker, frailer hip fracture patients. Um, and I know that our curbsider teammate, Rahul, uh, reviewed it for Journal Watch, um, and he and others did a really great job of kind of really reading between the lines, including the inclusion and exclusion criteria, to help us put some of those findings from the study in, in a better context. So Angie, what's your take on, on that study and if we should be moving away from spinals or and, and moving back toward general anesthesia, or if still in certain patients, a regional approach is just going to be a much better periop experience. So actually, uh, you know, I, I did my training at Cornell University and I was there as an attending for a number of years before I came over here. And the REGAIN trial, we were enrolling patients there on the REGAIN trial while um, I was working as a regional anesthesiologist. So I did take care of patients who were randomized in this study there. Um, you know, I think it goes again to what I was saying with the postoperative cognitive dysfunction. There's so many different things that go into postoperative cognitive dysfunction and delirium. These are patients with an acute injury, with an unplanned hospitalization that are older, you know, that may have memory issues and other things going on. And unfortunately, there's a lot of different things that go into their outcomes and maybe spinal versus general anesthesia is not necessarily been shown to one be better than the other. Um, so unfortunately, that's where we are with the data right now. I think as an anesthesiologist, the most important thing to do is to have a conversation with a patient to determine what does the, pa what does the patient prefer. There are still advantages to regional anesthesia, even if 
we haven't shown an overall survival benefit. Um, again, like I said, regional anesthesia, you get less nar narcotics, less post-operative nausea and vomiting. Um, and overall, I think the experience is better. And the only thing that I can really say is that if I were having hip fracture surgery, I would want to have it done under spinal um, just because I just think it's it's a better anesthetic. It's a more targeted anesthetic. Um, and overall, patients get less medications. But unfortunately, we don't have the evidence necessarily to say that for sure it's better. So let me loop us back briefly to just sort of when we talk about general anesthesia, and I so appreciate you painting that it these terms all exist on a spectrum um, with lots of nuances. But, but if a patient was getting general anesthesia, getting intubated, um, was going to have you know, achieve analgesia and amnesia and be paralyzed during a case. Like, what are your go-to drugs or drug classes these days? Like, I from talking to a lot of patients who had their their tonsillectomy as a three-year-old in the fifties, they're not getting ether anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love when I get a patient who had ether. Um, it sounds like it was a terrible, terrible drug. I mean, people were like, oh man, that was horrible. Yeah, and there's my guts out. <laughs> there's How still a lot. I, don't know. I was under five. <laughs> still a lot of people around that actually had ether. And I was really lucky to be trained by anesthesiologists who actually trained, you know, when they were giving ether. It's just a really interesting history of our specialty. Um, but we've advanced a lot with general anesthesia. So if I'm doing a surgery with uh, general anesthesia requiring intubation, um, and we don't necessarily have to paralyze for all the surgeries, but um, oftentimes for laparoscopic surgeries, we will need paralysis um, for those surgeries. The most important thing that we do, aside from amnesia and analgesia, which you already mentioned, is creating safe surgical conditions. And there's different ways that we do that and different things that need to be done um, for different surgeries. But let's just give the example of, you know, sort of a classic laparoscopic surgery, cholecystectomy, gallbladder removal. Um, basically, we may give patients a little bit of midazolam if they're anxious before bringing them back to the operating room or while they're in the operating room, getting them set up to all their monitors. And we pre-oxygenate so that their FRC and, and lungs are filled with 100% oxygen. And then uh, we induce general anesthesia. So we want them completely asleep before we place that breathing tube. And we'll do an endotracheal tube for a laparoscopic surgery. So usually we'll do a fentanyl, lidocaine, propofol, and a muscle relaxant. Uh, most commonly used is rocuronium. Intubate. And then the patient will either go on volatile anesthetic, so sort of a descendant of ether or a relative of ether. We commonly use sebofluorine. Um, also, desflurane is used or isoflurane. There's different reasons to use those, uh, which we won't really go into. Or we do a TIVA anesthetic, which is a total intravenous anesthetic. So that would be not giving any gas at all. Um, to keep them to sleep, but just giving them IV medications. And oftentimes we'll be running propofol um, and or dexmedetomidine or remifentanil or, or another medication um, during the anesthetic. Oftentimes if I'm doing an anesthetic in, let's say you, Avi, a young female who's non-smoking, <laughs> who, <laughs> who maybe has motion sickness, I'm not sure. 
um, gets motion sickness in a car, has nausea after surgery, you're extremely uh, high risk for nausea after surgery. So I would either run a TIVA, so have you on a total intravenous anesthetic, or I would run some background propofol and give you a couple different antiemetics to reduce your risk of postoperative nausea and vomiting. Then once we have completed the surgery and now we need to get you off our ventilator, we need to get you breathing well on your own, we need to get your pain controlled, and we need to get you to the PACU. Um, the analogy I make for this for my residents is I say this is like preparing for Thanksgiving dinner. You know, your guests are coming at a certain time. You got to get the turkey ready. You want the sides ready. There's a lot of things going on. Someone comes early. You find out someone else is coming late. And, you know, you're just trying to get everything ready in time. Um, and, and what our ideal thing is as soon as that surgical drape comes down, our tube is out and that patient is sort of ready to get transported over and brought to the, the recovery room. There's a lot of different things that go into doing that. But the common medications that we give, um, antiemetics, we have to give a reversal agent to reverse whatever muscular, um, neuromuscular blocker we gave. So Sugamidex is a really common medication. It's important to mention Sugamidex for you, Avi, and other young females who may be on birth control pills because it can counteract the action of those birth control pills. And if you receive Sugamidex during your anesthetic, you really need to... Um, use a second form of birth control for a couple weeks so that you don't have an unintended pregnancy. And we'll also give you some narcotic to make sure that you're comfortable and your pain is well controlled. I think we need to move on to uh, some of the risk stratification for this yeah. for this patient mm -hmm. um, in, for, for interest of time. That was the whole, this case was, was delayed because presumably he got to the OR and or or the pack the pre-op and they were just like whoa this this doesn't seem like uh this was done appropriately so we've talked with uh Avi in the past at length about how we approach as internists but can you tell us a little bit is there, are there any major differences about how you would approach a patient like this and um and tell us how you might go about that well I mean, the, the most important thing is to try to get as many of those records as you can. Um, but presumably this patient was having surgery at an inappropriate location. It looks like he was scheduled for an ambulatory surgery center and then was moved over to the main hospital. And at our ambulatory surgery center, I helped um, sort of develop those guidelines for who is an appropriate candidate for an ambulatory surgery center versus who would need to go to the hospital. Um, and having a diagnosis like pulmonary hypertension, especially if it's moderate to severe, is not a patient that's a good candidate to have surgery in an ambulatory surgery center. Um, so, you know, the words pulmonary and hypertension are fairly, you know, benign on their own. But when you remove the and and you say pulmonary hypertension, <laughs> It becomes a really big problem for anesthesiologists. We do not like pulmonary hypertension. Um, and so he likely with moderate to severe pulmonary hypertension probably needed to be moved. I'm also concerned that maybe he has valvular disease. Um, he said he had a murmur. So um, I would want to get that information as well. And he has this lower extremity swelling, which makes me concerned more for pulmonary hypertension. Um, as well. So I think for this patient, if I could get that old anesthetic record, if I could look and see why he was canceled, 
that would be helpful. He may have come in, you know, in a hypertensive urgency or some other situation, and that is useful information as well. Um, but I would want to see an old echocardiogram and old records if we have any. And if presumably since he said that was years ago, we probably need a repeat. So if he had moderate to severe pulmonary hypertension, moderate to severe valvular disease, maybe Brian is kicking it on the weekends and hiking and things. But if his functional tolerance isn't great um, and we have some concern that perhaps his cardiac disease has worsened, I'd probably want to repeat echo if that echo is uh, more than a few years old. And I'm curious to see um, what you guys would do. Would you want an echo for this patient, even if you had the old one from, say, three to, you know, three to four years ago? I'm definitely deferring to our perioperative chief. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, with very little information about Brian, um, I, I would probably plan on updating an echo unless something really proved itself reassuring to me. Um, when I think I shared this in the first periop episode we recorded a couple of years ago, but the mantra I say day in and day out, and I use even to explain to patients why I'm pursuing additional testing or why we're doing this very detailed history, is that knowledge is empowering. Um, and this actually is going to lead to my next question. So one of the things that I see our, our colleagues across the board getting stymied by is the the huge amount of gray zone that exists in the guidelines. And, you know, on the one hand, we in, in internal medicine, we've embraced the like, you know, only order that test if it'll change management. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's where so many people like just get frustrated and and tripped up, especially in periop is you say, and so the hypothetical example I give when I'm lecturing is, you know, your change management as a primary care clinician or as an inpatient hospitalist might be very different, but yet overlap with the change management and, and knowledge as empowering to change management than the anesthesiologists or even the surgeons. You know, we have hospitalists that take an elective and come to our um, clinic and they rotate with us a half a day a week, uh, which I really enjoy. And talking about this quote unquote, will it, if don't do it, if it won't change management is one thing that I always try to talk to them about, because I do think that if there is sort of a conflict or disagreement between our two specialties, that's often one of them, which is um, you all don't think it's going to change your management, but it absolutely can change our management. And if we have a patient who's exercising a lot and really kicking it and doing a lot of work, and we don't need the echocardiogram. We really don't, unless you're hearing a murmur that we need to sort of um, look at and and see. Maybe they have some valvular disease that's subclinical. Um, But, you know, in, I would say the majority of our patients that are, you know, over 65 having surgery, a lot of them have significant functional limitations and we really can't assess their cardiovascular capacity just by looking at them. Um, And having an echocardiogram to understand their function can really help us manage the case. We manage, you know, uh, severe pulmonary hypertension with RV dilation um, and reduced function very differently um, than a patient with another uh, cardiac um, issue. So having that information is helpful. And then on the other hand, let's say you have a patient who maybe has a, um, is presenting for pre-op before they have their necessary brain tumor resection surgery, you know, but they're explaining symptoms which sound very sp- suspicious for um, angina. 
And, you know, if they weren't having this brain surgery, maybe you would send them for a workup because they might need a coronary stent uh, for their long-term survival. But because they're having this brain surgery, if you place a stent, now when are we pushing the brain surgery out? And, you know, when can they come off their antiplatelet agents, that kind of thing. But from our standpoint, having the stress test, even if it is abnormal and doesn't result in going to a cardiac cath, we can use the information from the stress test. Um, we can see, oh, this patient is having uh, ischemia in the right coronary artery territory. That's not a region that we typically monitor with our ECG leads interoperatively. But if we know that that patient is at risk in that area, maybe we want to. Maybe that's helpful information for us. Maybe we see that this patient's showing signs of ischemia when their heart rate's above you know, 110, okay, let's make sure to keep this heart rate, you know, in the 90s or, or lower. Maybe this patient is planning on having surgery to place without any cardiologist in-house. And maybe that should be moved to a place where someone can deal with it if they, if they do have a post-operative cardiac event. So I think that um, the stress test really helps us manage patients intraoperatively um, in ways that maybe internists haven't thought through because you're doing a different, you're doing different steps in management when you're seeing patients outpatient. Yeah, that was a great pearl. And, and I'll absolutely second it from, from my end of things too. And just, you know, conversations that I've, that I've coached people through in, in our pre-op clinic at Northwest Cashlock, that, that the, the automatic stress test next step is not necessarily stenting and dual antiplatelet. It may be, um, you know, stress test, you know, is it a high, low risk or intermediate or high risk study? And remember, even the dreaded step six of, of the ACC-HA algorithm says, you know, depending on the results, you might actually opt for a change in surgical management or even palliative care. So you can change management in a very broad set of ways. But, you know, let's say you get the stress test and it's, you know, small, distal, you, know, you really look over it with an echocardiologist and you say, oh, you know, this is probably too small to stent anyway, so we're not even going to go going to go to cath. Or you go to cath saying, like, don't put a stent in, but tell me, you know, where's the lesion? Is it proximal? Is it distal? Um, so there's a lot that you can do to change the management, you know, based on test results. And I also just want to add that, like, sometimes just getting more information about a patient to triage them to the safest venue um, that's probably one of the biggest workflows that I do on like a weekly basis. Like, yes, you're stable optimized. Again, we're not saying cleared. You're stable optimized for surgery, but not at the location you're scheduled at. I think I would add a caveat, which is that you really need to have good communication um, because at some places, you know, it, it, like, it's like a domino. You get an abnormal stress test. They end up in the cath lab. And maybe that wasn't intended. But, you know, you really have to communicate to sort of prevent that from happening. And the other thing I would say is that on our end, when we have an abnormal stress test for a patient that's going to the OR, and this happens, you know, not infrequently here, I will give a call to the anesthesia team. Hey, you're going to see this stress test. Uh, it is abnormal. This patient is optimized. They're medically optimized, and you know the cat. You, this is the information that's in your in the chart to look at. Um, just because there is the risk of just people seeing abnormal stress tests cancel. Um, so making sure everyone's kind of on the same page with that. So this is just great, and and I'm so glad that we're we're doing this anesthesiology for the internists, um, so that we can continue to communicate and partner in safest patient care. Um, 
So we've talked about sort of approaches to pulmonary hypertension or left heart versus right heart failure being different. Are there any other like hot topics where you see the internal medicine, like chronic disease management or even internal medicine periop guidelines different um, being significantly different than the anesthesiology guidelines? Um, you know, you, you mentioned the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and anticoagulants for neuroaxial anesthesia. That's a, a, a big difference. Um, that often trips people up, and I can we'll include that in the show notes as well. But you know, the one that that comes to mind is the the ACE ARB debate. Do you hold them? Do you do you fold them on the day of surgery? Yeah, I think I mean there's a few different things that I think that we may have some differences um, between anesthesia and internal medicine. ACEs and ARBs. This is one of my favorite topics, actually, um, and I um, give a talk at the ASA, or I'm going to be uh, leading a point-counterpoint talk on management of blood pressure intraoperatively, and ACEs and ARBs is something that we think a, a lot about in anesthesia. Used to be something we had very little expertise in sort of treating um, the severe resistant hypotension that can occur under anesthesia in patients who have taken their ACE inhibitors or ARBs. But now we've become very, you know, um, able to and trained in in treating that hypotension. So I think that hypotension in patients who have taken it is not as big of a deal as it has mm. been in the past. When you have someone hold their ACE inhibitor, yes, it does reduce intraoperative hypotension, but it ends up resulting in more postoperative hypertension. So in a patient with very poorly controlled hypertension or someone who's tenuous, with their blood pressure control, I would probably have them continue it. Um, and that's what we do in our clinic. But in someone who is a fairly straightforward hypertensive patient who um, is having a straightforward surgery as well, holding one dose of the ACE inhibitor is, is fine too. Um, you mentioned a couple other things, which is the ASRA guidelines, and I'm glad to get to speak on that. Um, I personally feel that the ASRA guidelines are a little unnecessarily conservative, that we do end up holding or having to tell patients to hold their DOACs for longer than is probably necessary based on the half-lives of those medications. But because it's our society guidelines, we really do have to follow them. It's hard to defend a complication from an epidural hematoma um, when you didn't follow your own society guidelines. So uh, looking at those is important. Although the new set of guidelines, which aren't that new, hopefully we'll get another set of guidelines soon, uh, do give you room for um, giving or doing a neuraxial anesthetic before the recommended days of holding the medication if you can show evidence of normal um, clotting function. So if you have a platelet assay at your institution, for example, for a patient who is on Plavix, um, or you want to do a factor 10A assay on a patient who's on a factor 10A inhibitor, you may be able to get around um, patients who have held them for less than the recommended time. Um, but oftentimes holding those in, in, is important. A caveat again there is that I don't know how often internists really know that a patient's going to get a neuraxial anesthetic mm -hmm. or not and or a neuraxial analgesic. And so it, that can be difficult. Do you tell someone, you know, who has AFib, who is fairly high risk from a Chad's VASC perspective to hold their medication for an extra day because they might be getting an epidural, even though they might not. Um, and, and that's hard. So if you can phone a friend in anesthesia um, and understand better your own institutional um, practice, that can be helpful. 
Oh, great. So just to wrap up case one before we move on to case two. So it sounds like Bob had some sort of some sort of underlying cardiac or cardiopulmonary abnormality that led to an echo. Um, so there was clinical concern for either valvular disease or right heart dysfunction or some maybe sequelae of his sleep apnea. Um, got his surgery done ultimately successfully at, at a university or a main ho- major hospital center rather than an ambulatory surgery center. Um, well, it sounds like kind of if we go into his contralateral joint replacement with maybe an updated echo or really access to his original records, his time zero records, that he you know could be a good candidate for neuroaxial anesthesia, um, you know, is stable and optimized, but once we sort of finish his robust assessment. And he wouldn't be an ambulatory patient because of the words pulmonary hypertension without and in between them, <laughs> yeah. which is bad. Exactly. Yep. If there's no and, it's not good. Right. I like it. I That's easy to remember. <laughs> well, let's do this. Let's move on from Brian. And I'm going to tell us about Maria, who's a 25-year-old uh, woman with Down syndrome, autism spectrum disorder, and severe dental phobia. Um, so since she was a child, she's had multiple routine dental procedures, including routine cleanings done in the OR uh, with general anesthesia. Um, and she's had some sort of vague anesthesia complication. I'm doing air quotes. It's like the fourth time of the night on a, an old EHR problem list, um, but there's no qualifying information. And her parents honestly don't even remember if it was difficulty waking up or difficulty staying or sleep. Um, just, you know, in the flurry of, of information in the PACU one time, they said something didn't go quite as well as we would have wished, but she was fine and went home. So she's now coming in for wisdom teeth extraction, and she sent to her, her PCP for her pre-op. Um, and the pre-CP is really wondering why the visit is needed before wisdom teeth extraction, um, and if so, how she can best add value to to the Thanksgiving dinner, to the surgical space, and make this <laughs> as safe as possible. So the first one the PCP is also wondering about is there's there's a form that they have to fill out, uh, and it says, uh, what is the patient's ASA class? Uh, and you mentioned the ASA ASA meeting coming up soon, but but what is the ASA class, and and how can we, to the best of our abilities, grade this patient? Well, the ASA classification system actually was uh, developed, I think, in the seventies um, to use to uh, standardize outcomes for research. So they were looking at sort of postoperative outcomes. And, you know, realize that you really have to compare apples to apples and you want to not compare the outcomes of a very sick patient to the outcomes of a pretty healthy patient. And so they developed this ASA status classification system to do so. Um, It's one of the first of its kind. And I think that it has sort of morphed into a whole other animal um, than it was originally intended for. And so a lot of people are sort of classifying patients by their ASA status. Um, in a different way than it was originally intended. Um, but ASA status, we use sort of one one through six, and you can either be an emergency or not. And so patients being seen in an internist office are not going to be an emergency. They're not going to be a six. Those are our organ donors. And they're also not going to be a five. Those are patients who are not expected to live. Um, so patients who have a ruptured aneurysm, multi-organ system failure, that kind of thing. Um, but they may be an ASA one through four. Um, 
I would say, though, unless you're a pediatrician, you're probably not seeing many ASA ones. If you have even occasional alcohol use, you're two. Um, and so uh, ASA twos are the predominant um, number of patients that we see. And these are patients who don't have any functional limitations. Um, and they, if they have medical problems, they're well-controlled. Patients who are overweight, uh, non-smokers, non-drinkers, would also be uh, considered an ASA2 as well. And anyone who is pregnant is considered an ASA2. And certain BMIs actually get you to three, even if you're yes. otherwise healthy and functional, right? Yeah. A BMI of 40 is going to get you to three. Um, so, you know, when they look at this, there's a huge amount of provider variability between designating pre predominantly between a two and a three and a three and a four. Um, so I spent a lot of time trying to educate our pre-op clinic staff and the residents about what's the difference between a two and a three and what's the difference between a three and a four. Um, but a patient who is an ASA3 is someone who has substantive functional limitations. Um, and in addition to their medical problems or those medical problems are causing substantive um, functional limitations. So these are patients who have hypertension, but it's not well-controlled or it's a recent diagnosis. They're patients who have ever had a heart attack in the past. They're patients with end-stage renal disease, even if they're on dialysis. A patient who's a four is someone whose condition is a constant threat to life. Um, so someone who had a recent heart attack or stroke, um, someone who has a large aneurysm, um, you know, uh, someone with severe valvular disease, severe pulmonary hypertension. So our friend Brian um, from before, maybe an ASA three or four, we don't really know. We haven't really looked at his echocardiogram. He could be... Um, He's not a two. He does not have treated um, sleep apnea. Um, so he's either a three or a four. But what I teach our residents is, how do you know the difference between a three and a four? Um, if I told you, hey, this patient died while grocery shopping, would you be surprised or could you come up with a real easy, legitimate reason for how that happened? Oh, yeah, their aneurysm probably ruptured. Or, oh, yeah, that valvular disease probably you know, caused a problem finally, or their coronary arteries, um, they had a massive MI. So if you have a medical condition where you could explain sort of a sudden um, death without too much activity, then that person is a four. So like one of the ones that like trips me up all the time is mm -hmm. um, like myasthenia gravis. Like somebody can be really, really well compensated, but like if they miss a dose of meds, they're going to be in respiratory failure. So would you grade them as a four or a three? That's diff that's a difficult one. I, you know, I have the same thing with someone who's oxygen dependent. You know, if they 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 look great as long as they have their oxygen on, but if their oxygen tank runs out, then they're you know they're a four. Um, I think myasthenia gravis, if it's well controlled and well treated, and they're asymptomatic when they're taking their medications regularly, um, is a three. I mean, you could argue that it's a two uh, as well, um, but would be a four if they're not compliant with their treatment or medication and would be a three if they were recently diagnosed. And this comes into play for us because the MICA score is you have to you have to put in an ASA class. So if you're putting a three versus a four, a two, three, or four, yeah. it could change the risk score depending on what else you're you're checking off in there. So that's where this is very relevant to us. Yeah. And we run we we do that score in our clinic as well and we run into that issue. It's like, well I just Plugged everything in, and their risk is 1.4%. Am I supposed to do, you know, a stress test for this patient? 
Um, and it's tough that a risk calculator is using a score with such variability um, in intra-operator variability, which has been really well demonstrated. Um, you take 100 people and you have them score 100 patients each, and you're going to have a lot of differences between twos and threes and threes and fours. We're just not that consistent about it. We know a one and we know a five. Not in our audience. Now that now that you taught them the grocery shopping question, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <If> they, <laughs> yeah but it's really hard to be a one. I mean, I see so many ASA ones in in charts, and it's it's really really hard to be a one. Pediatric patients are really like really the only ones that are ones. Um, this patient Maria, she's twenty five. She has Down syndrome. Um, an autism spectrum disorder. I don't know with her Down syndrome if she has um, other conditions as well. Does she have a stable C-spine? Does she have any mm-hmm. cardiac conditions? So it's really hard to say without any further information what her ASA status is um, and what medications she needs to take. But presuming that she isn't taking any medications and doesn't have any chronic medical problems and has good heart function and no other limitations, she could be a one. Cool. Well, yeah. then why might a minor procedure like like dental cleaning or wisdom teeth extraction, why might that need to be done in an operating room setting uh, or an ambulatory setting? In this situation, um, because of her phobia and possibly her autism spectrum disorder, depending on what her symptoms are from that, um, you know, in terms of one of our jobs as an anesthesiologist, which is, re- is creating safe surgical conditions. Um, this patient may need general anesthesia to do so. And um, anytime that we're working sort of in someone's mouth, we usually do intubate and place um, an endotracheal tube. Um, And for this patient, what I would add to this case that I would like people to know is, again, um, you know, if you can get any of those records to see what that complication is, that would be helpful if possible. Um, But also just getting more information about the patient. Is this a patient who is so nervous they need an anxiolytic before they even get to the hospital? Well, that'll have to be prescribed um, by them, um, by someone who cares for that patient. And as their anesthesiologist, I'm not technically their care provider um, unless I've seen them in clinic myself. Um, Is this someone who's actually really pretty compliant and will let us put an IV in and they have they have good looking veins and so it shouldn't be much of a problem. But they're going to be coming to the hospital with their care provider and their medical POA isn't going to be there to provide consent. So um, making sure that, you know, that information so we know who to contact so that there aren't delays in cancellation on the same day can be very helpful. Well, that's super high yield. And then I want to wrap up also just with the broader question, what is an anesthesia complication versus a surgical complication? So patients oftentimes attribute issues that they had with the anesthesia that actually cannot be attributed to the anesthesia. And so oftentimes just taking a good history to kind of suss that out is something that we'll do. So just charting sort of in air quotes, whatever they said um, can help us because then we can have a conversation uh, with them and and try to kind of um, suss it out a little bit um, further. Um, but, you know, delayed wake up is one thing. Um, but, you know, oftentimes people feel like they were delayed or they took a long time to wake up when in actuality they were just in the PACU for, you know, 45 minutes. It's a continuum of wake up times that people have in the PACU and everybody's a little bit different. Um, but it could be a situation where there was a pseudocolonesterase deficiency and the patient never, you know, regained twitches after they got succinylcholine for their surgery. 
And so that's something that's very different. Um, so if they're saying, um, yeah, I was awake and I'm paralyzed or I had to stay on the breathing machine after surgery, um, those would be things that would would prompt something more um, more detailed. But those are very, very rare. Yeah. And on the flip side, if somebody said I woke up in the middle of surgery right, or I heard the surgeon yeah. talking, especially with the spectrum of, of anesthetic care that you described earlier, like how, other than getting the records, like how could you try to tease out if that was truly intra-op awareness or if they this was a level of like conscious sedation or moderate sedation? Yeah. So, I mean, knowing what type of procedure they had and if you can sort of you know, generalize from that with the type of anesthesia they probably had for their surgery. Um, a lot of it has to do with expectations and patients maybe not getting um, informed adequately during the consent process to know um, what to expect and how, you know, whether or not they'll hear things or know things that are going on or whether or not they're going to be completely asleep. True intraoperative awareness, which is a patient who is paralyzed and, you know, completely um, under general anesthesia, um, and aware of what's going on is exceedingly rare. Um, and uh, it, it's really, really unlikely. Most of the time that patients said that they were awake during their surgery, it was because they had a regional nerve block or a neuraxial anesthetic or a sedation um, and they weren't like completely asleep. And then one of, I think, the coolest like anecdotes turned to like scientific fact in medicine do redheads, like natural redhead, redheads, truly have more intraop awareness? I don't know about intraop awareness. It's been very, very established that they need more anesthesia. Absolutely. And that has been shown um, in both experience and, <laughs> and in research. And we're not really sure about the mechanism, but redheads do need more anesthesia. They have more tolerance to our pain medications. There's actually, when they when they walk the genome, they found that the the gene for red hair is like right next to one of the, I think, cytochromes or one of the metabolizing enzymes for anesthesia. Yeah. And I think, you know, we don't really know how anesthesia works. We don't really know how you lose consciousness, right? Because we don't understand consciousness. So, you know, how do we get to this? How do we figure that out? How do we know how things work? And maybe getting closer to the redhead gene is the key to all of it. Um, I don't want to not talk about malignant hyperthermia since we're talking about Ooh, complications yeah. real fast. Um, malignant hyperthermia is extremely rare as well, um, but it's a severe and can be fatal reaction to anesthesia. So if you have a patient who has any family members that they're genetically related to that had a very high temperature or died under general anesthesia, that would maybe, you know, um, perk your radars up for the possibility of malignant hyperthermia. When we have a patient who has a family member in their or in themselves or in a close genetic relative with a history or probable malignant hyperthermia, there's a number of things that we do in the operating room. Like one, we have to get the operating room ready for them. We take all our volatile anesthetics out. We clean our machine out. Um, that process takes about an hour and we avoid specific medications that can be triggering agents. Um, so knowing about that in advance is super important. It's not great when we find that out in pre-op, um, but you know we, we deal with it when we do, but if we can find that out in advance, um, that, can, that can really help as well. Well, I think we are, we are out of time here. 
we always ask our guests, can you give us like a couple take-home points that you really want the audience to remember about our discussion? And that's usually the end of the show. Well, I think we could keep talking, Matt and Javi. So if you guys want to bring me back, I'm happy to come back. <laughs> Plug. <laughs> Plug for myself. <laughs> We're having fun, um, too. Efficacy, it's a thing. Especially <laughs> for women um, in medicine. <laughs> I think... Um, what I would like people to come away from is that anesthesiologists um, are, are people too. No, we take, <laughs> we take really, we do. We take care of patients during a very critical period um, and they can, the surgeries that they have can be very intense and stressful. And as much information as you can give us on that patient's functional status, on their medical history, on whether or not those medical problems are optimized, is really helpful for us to take better care of the patient. Just letting us know that the patient is cleared is, is not helpful. We, we, we need to know how their heart functions and how, what their other medical problems are and whether or not those medical problems are optimized. Um, steer away from giving us advice on how to manage our anesthetic. We do know to avoid hypercapnia and hypoxia in patients with hyper, pulmonary hypertension. And we will try to do a neuraxial anesthetic if it's the safe and best anesthetic for a patient. Um, but patients should never be said that they're cleared for any specific type of anesthesia. Um, they're either optimized or they're not. Um, and um, if you can make friends with an anesthesiologist and you have someone to ask questions to, uh, it's a great way to sort of up the communication. I really enjoy these cross-specialty conversations that we have. Um, I really enjoy our organization, SPACI, which is um, a perioperative medicine organization, which is multidisciplinary with internists and anesthesiologists. And that's how Avi and I uh, got to know each other. So if you have more interest in learning about anesthesia and working with us, it's a great organization to join. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get the digest, which recaps the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge, so we want your feedback. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. Reminder that this and most episodes are available through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. I wanted to give a special thanks to our writers and producers for this episode, Edison, Eddie Jang, Avital, Yehudit Oglasser, and to our whole team. The show is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I've been Abitalia Pudit Oglasser. 